0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Economist Radio. You're listening to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukia, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, is there any way to spur real action on climate change?
2: My basic perspective is that the contributions of your individual lifestyle choices are completely trivial when compared to things at the policy level.
1: And how natural disasters surprisingly fade from memory.
0: One of the best ways to teach history, at least in a sort of warning sense
1: of history, is to bring the
0: survivors into the classroom.
1: But first, artificial intelligence is becoming fundamental to how many companies, particularly online companies, do business. Of course, we've heard lots about Facebook and Google, but what about Amazon? There, AI and machine learning is part of almost every aspect of the company, from distribution and warehousing to web services. Hal Hodson is the Economist Technology Correspondent, and he's been to Amazon's Seattle headquarters to watch what's going on. Hello, Hal. Hello, Ken. Long time no see. Absolutely. Hal, I have to insert some sort of ridiculous joke about AI because your name is Hal.
3: I mean, please, please be my guest.
1: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. (laughs) (laughs) Hal, Amazon is notorious for wanting to actually do things rather than talk about things. So it's kind of unusual that you got such great access. What did you see while you were there?
3: I spent two days at Amazon talking to their machine learning executives. The premise for the piece is like you don't really hear much from Amazon in the domain of like driverless cars or, you know, you don't really hear about people worrying about killer robots. A lot of the AI conversation is driven, and this is sort of the public conversation by Facebook and Google, but it's sort of generally known in the industry that Amazon is just like stuffed to the gills with algorithms that learn how the systems that they run work and try and find improvements in them. And so I talk to the Alexa teams, which is the voice assistant. I talk to the people who run the warehouses. I talk to the people who run AWS, um, which is their uh, huge cloud computing platform. And maybe the the highest level takeaway is if you've been paying attention to Amazon, then you've heard of this thing called, they call it the flywheel. You might also call it a virtuous circle or a positive feedback loop. And what this means is that Amazon makes a good product and then customers use it. Say Amazon.com is the service where you shop and customers use it and Amazon gathers data about how the customers are using it and they make Amazon.com better and more customers use it because it's better and it accretes and accretes and accretes and gets better and the thing that came out that you could kind of know if you know how these things work, but it's now sort of on the record and in the piece, is that machine learning is like a vital component of doing this because Amazon operates at such a gigantic, mind-numbing scale that if you don't have automation in the loop, you just can't do it. And Jeff Wilkie, who's the CEO, he explicitly said that they knew this from the beginning, roughly in 1999. They knew that they wanted to sell millions of different products, billions of items overall, all over the world, and that they knew they needed to automate to do that. So lots of companies have that insight that with data, you
1: can improve the product and get that virtuous circle, that flywheel going – Google and Facebook are two of the most notorious ones, and they do an extraordinarily good job of applying machine learning. But they're also getting beaten back by privacy advocates and regulators because of the data,
3: but Amazon, less so. This actually might be one of the most interesting things. With Google and Facebook, there's this split, this classic split between the users and the customers. And people talk about if you're not paying, then you're the product. And so in Google and Facebook's cases, they have to serve two masters. They serve you, the person who uses their email or their social network, but they also serve the advertisers. And so their interests are split. They have a conflict of interests. In Amazon's case, the user and the customer are the same. It's you. You are the only person they care about. They do have some second order conflict of interests in terms of like who gets to sell what on their platform. And sometimes Amazon a little bit competes with them. And that is problematic. But Jeff Bezos has not testified to Congress. Jeff Bezos is not being hauled in front of Senate committees and being accused of ruining democracy. Amazon is scot-free at the moment. And it's because of that alignment of what you're doing and who you're doing it for and why you're gathering the data.
1: how my final question for you is after looking at AI in terms of how it's being adopted in businesses across the economy, as well as now looking at Amazon, what do you think the future is going to look like? Will companies be able to adopt AI and bring it in to their own businesses across the board, or do the great companies that have the most resources, will they always be out ahead of others and it's going to actually enable them to concentrate power in ways that would be unhealthy for the economy?
3: I will not pretend that I have a very, very solid answer to this question, because I think if I did, a lot more people would perhaps be listening to me. But my leaning is towards the latter, which is that I think that the group of advantages that the big tech companies have, direct relationships with customers, usually through phones or devices, ability to gather large volumes of data, massive momentum and capital so that they can pay people and spin up huge computers. I think that that beats what any Joe Schmo can do with their startup. And a sort of pertinent piece of information to this question is a report that came out from The Information this week, which is a news website in California, showing that the uptake of Amazon's own AI services, which it offers to third parties, sort of APIs that do voice recognition and stuff, is not that great. It's not super hot stuff. Other companies in the economy are not diving right in on this stuff. It's not going gangbusters. Whereas internally, running its own systems, Amazon's stuff is going gangbusters. It is like completely foundational to how they run the company. So I think it is more that the giants are getting stronger even now with all the attention they're getting. Will you now finally open the pod bay doors? I'm sorry, Ken. I'm afraid I can't do that.
1: Story of my life. Thanks a lot, Hal.
3: Thank you, Ken. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Next, environmental activists are becoming more energized as debate around climate change intensifies. A patient approach to affecting change has been replaced by a more urgent call to action – Protesters from an environmental group called Extinction Rebellion occupied central locations in London this week. The demonstrators are not violent, but they are willing, indeed eager, to be arrested for civil disobedience. The sense of urgency that is prompting protesters to take to the streets is the same found in the opening lines of a recent book on climate change by the American journalist David Wallace-Wells called the uninhabitable earth. The book opens with the line, it is worse, much worse than you think. So is there any way to limit the destruction or at least avert some of its effects? David Wallace-Wells spoke to The Economist business editor and former environment correspondent Jan Petrowski.
4: David, welcome to Babbage. Thanks, great to be here. So I want us to start with the storytelling. And now I've been writing about the environment and obviously climate change being the, the most important story in the environment, certainly now and, and certainly for for the past decade at least. And I find it really difficult. I mean, it's really difficult to write about climate change because you have to steer a very delicate course between techno-optimism or underplaying the problem to the point where it breeds complacency and alarmism, which in turn might risk breeding a sort of sense of fatalism that we can't do anything about it. And how do you navigate between those two extremes because it's really very hard and either of these is really not, it's sort of inimical to getting people involved and engaged. It's almost more about advocacy than about
2: journalism. So I come to this story really as a journalist, as a storyteller and I think the main obligation there is to tell the truth. So to write about the science as it's emerging, to be honest about it, not to be scared of its scarier outcomes and not to be too enamored of its rosier outcomes, but to really tell the full spectrum of the possibilities as the scientist See it. And that's how I've approached this book. But I think, you know, anyone writing about climate, you feel called to advocacy, even if you don't start out as an advocate, because the issue is so dramatic, so threatening, it'll touch every aspect of all. Have you become an advocate? I feel like I'm in a kind of hybrid position now, and presumably over the course of the next months, as I'm going around talking about this book, I may feel more pulled in that direction than I am now. I still feel primarily obligated to the truth, really, not particular messaging strategy. But on the question of how to balance complacency and fatalism, when I look out in the world, I see a world that is obviously complacent, and... If there's a risk for messaging on climate, it seems obvious to me that more complacency is a bigger risk than more fatalism, which is to say I was not an environmentalist. I'm not someone who has lived my life according to these principles, and I came to this issue and became – now a kind of quasi-advocate, out of fear. And so I know from my own experience that alarm can be motivating in that way. When I look around my friend group, my cohort, even more generally at the country I live in and the West generally, I see so many more people who, while they may be aware of and a bit concerned about climate change, are not motivated to really act politically in their own lives up to the scale that the challenge demands. And that, to me, says that if we're navigating between those two poles, maybe we've been navigating too close to hope and optimism, which breeds complacency, and not actually using the tool of alarm sufficiently. So
4: I think you make a very, very good point. And this is something that needs to be stressed again and again. And we sort of, for all the sort of talk of, of a green revolution, if you just looked at the headlines, you would think that all world is being powered by solar panels and wind turbines, whereas, whereas actually the best... That that these renewable technologies are doing is taking a sliver of the extra energy demand that is coming online in the world, and, and carbon emissions are flat or, or even ticking up slightly. Yes. So it's like, it's a, just to paraphrase solo, right? So you can see the green revolution everywhere except for the carbon emission statistics. Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it's kind of amazing and dispiriting, distressing that we've had this incredible green energy revolution. The price on solar in particular has fallen so dramatically much faster than any of even its advocates were saying would happen a decade or two ago. And yet, the proportion of global energy use that comes from renewables has not grown at all in 30, 40, 50 years, which means you know, we've made no progress at all. In fact, since our global energy use has expanded, we've actually made negative progress over that time. And this is a period of time when we all knew what the problem was and how to solve it. And that's another one of the most distressing things about climate change is that you know, we've now emitted half of the carbon we've ever emitted in the last 25 years. That means that we've done that damage to the climate knowingly. It's not an issue of ignorance. We're not dealing with the legacy of the Industrial Revolution from centuries past. We're really doing that damage right now. And we know we're doing it. And yet we can't stop ourselves.
4: Have you changed your behavior in any way? Personal consumption behavior in any way? You know, has this book prompted you to do something? Obviously, the climate is a massive cumulative collective action problem. And a single person, or even millions of people, for that matter, doing something on their own patch won't solve it. But has it prompted you to change your ways? I mean, the short answer is no. I am traveling a little bit less by plane,
2: and I probably will do even less. Well, probably of that not now with this book tour. Once the tour is over, yeah. Um, but I'm trying to I'm trying to do as little as I can with that um, while this is going on. My basic perspective is that the contributions of your individual lifestyle choices are completely trivial when compared to things at the policy level. And while I think everybody should live according to their values and if they want to, you know, shrink their own carbon footprint, they should do what they can to do that. But ultimately the impact of, say, eating less meat or even driving less or flying less is trivial compared to the impact you can have with your vote or by organizing in a more aggressive way. And so I think I just want to, to the extent that I am sort of painting a, a picture of how to, how to act, I think that politics is is by far the most important path forward. And it's a little bit of a distraction to be told that your consumption choices really matter because I think ultimately that's sort of the market teaching you to avoid politics and just behave differently in the market, which I think is a sort of
4: a problematic lesson. I agree with you completely on that. And I also have a sort of fear that when you talk to some of the some climate activists, the, the optimistic end of the spectrum, they point to... Everybody says you need a sort of step change in global behavior, and they point as an example of something which could be emulated to all the furore over plastics, which has certainly sort of engrossed this country for a a year and a bit. And I fear sometimes, when I look at that, that it's, you know, you, you could perceive so, this plastic panic in, in two ways. You can either see it as a sort of gateway drug to environmentalism, where you know, people get worried about plastic bottles and then get worried about other environmental issues. But I also fear, on the other hand, that it's highly psychologically possible that for many people, it, the plastics occupy the entire bandwidth devoted to environmentalism, yeah. and therefore they actually tick the box, the environmentalist box, by you know, not, throwing, not using a straw which won't make a dent either in the plastic problem or certainly in the in the carbon problem and then that's environmentalism done and dusted and it's an empirical question which one of these two approaches which I'm sure are in evidence in different places around the world, which one wins out in aggregate? And um, do you have a sense of whether, you know, whether these sort of more photogenic and easier to digest environmental problems can lead you to ultimately be more concerned about the big one? I i don't know the data. I would guess. I don't think there is. A, uh, yeah. I, I, tried to, I tried to pin some down. Yeah, nothing. N- no, I actually spoke to academics and they thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe, yeah. we should, <laughs> maybe we should do some research. On I mean, this. I would guess that you're right, that there is some
2: displacement going on, but I also think that probably it is a bit of a gateway dream. My concern with the plastic story is it's not impinging on our ability to. Live healthily on this planet. I mean, it's almost essentially an aesthetic problem. And I recognize the aesthetic problem as much as anyone. It's horrible to look at the ocean and see plastic in it, et cetera. But I think it teaches us that one of the problems with climate change is that carbon is invisible. And whereas in the 1970s, especially, we began worrying about the quality of air in the US and in Britain too, in part that was because we could see the pollution, we could see the smog. You see a similar thing happening in Beijing and China, and hopefully will happen in Delhi and India, um, which are the places that have dealt with smog the most smog recently. But carbon is a different issue. It's completely invisible. How do you make people um, aware of it and concerned about it? I think in a kind of perverse way, the extreme weather that we're seeing over the last couple of years is beginning to do that with wildfires, hurricanes, typhoons, the heat wave, You know, the unprecedented global heat wave last summer. But it's taken that long for climate change to really stick in people's minds because they had to have something they could visualize. And up to that point, it was all an abstraction and all completely invisible. But if you look at the data um, in the US in particular, there's actually been a quite dramatic uptick in interest and intensity of interest about climate change. So just since 2015, there's been about a 20 point rise in the number of people who believe global warming is real and who are concerned about global warming. So those numbers are now um, 73% and 70% of the public. And um, just three years ago, it was more, it was in the low 50s. So I think over time those impressions, the, the extreme weather is making an impact. The question is whether that new concern leads to political action quickly enough um, to really avert the worst impacts. And I think it's quite honestly, it's quite unlikely that we um, that we manage that. But I do see the tide turning. I do see more and more people concerned, more and more people engaged.
4: On that note of cautious pessimism, put it that way. (laughs) We have to end. David, thank you very much for being here.
1: That was David Wallace-Wells talking to Jan Petrowski. As part of the Economist Open Future initiative, we're running an excerpt from David Wallace-Wells' book on whether liberal democracy can survive climate change. You can go to economist.com slash open future for the excerpt. Our sister podcast, The Intelligence, takes a look at unicorns, not the single horned horses, but privately held startups valued at more than $1 billion. A slew of them are being floated or have already gone public on stock markets around the world for vast sums. Ludwig Sigela, our U.S. technology editor, assesses whether these beasts look so sure-footed
2: even though they, they're pretty cool, it's not clear whether they're good businesses. They've grown fast, they're considered very valuable, but it's not sure whether they can actually make money in the foreseeable future in many cases. Uber, for example, has made an operating loss of $3 billion last year. But you have to keep one thing in, in mind. Most of these online markets, and ride hailing in particular, is said to have strong network effects. That means if you're already big, if you have an advantage, you can you get even bigger and at some point become the winner in that market that takes it all. So it's it's basically a race. It's these companies spending a lot of money to become the winner that takes it all. And then at some point, once they dominate the market, increase the rates and make money this way. So they, they these unicorns are actually a very long-term bet. These markets are costly to build. But at some point, the companies think they can be profitable because they dominate the market.
1: Subscribe to Economist Radio to hear more. Finally on Babbage... How short is our memory when it comes to natural disasters? Collective remembering around natural catastrophes is not just an academic question. It informs how we prepare for future disasters. For some communities, survival depends on it. A group of researchers at the Czech University of Life Sciences in Prague have been studying the question. And they've come up with some surprising results. Laura Spinney has been writing on the subject for this week's Economist, Hello, Laura. Hi, Ken. So, Laura, what did the scientists analyze in the study?
0: They were looking at real-life decisions, essentially, that had been taken over centuries. They were asking how people who lived in settlements in the Vltava River Basin, that's the river that runs through Prague and much of Central Europe, had decided where to put their villages and towns over a period of about 900 years in relation to seven major floods that had occurred in that time. So where, for example, had they rebuilt their settlements once they'd been destroyed by a flood? And how did the memory of that flood shape those decisions over time?
1: And is there a rough timescale at which people start to forget disasters?
0: Yeah, and that's the big surprise of this study. Essentially, they found that for a generation after the flood, people moved their settlements to higher ground. And then basically by the second generation, so the grandchildren of the flood survivors, those settlements would start creeping back downhill again until they were encroaching once again on the flood zone risk zone.
1: So first, how were the disasters usually remembered by those communities?
0: So, uh, obviously, they are remembered by the people who survived them. And that's key to this finding, in fact. Another kind of piece of information that is sort of tangential to this study is that communicating risk, particularly of natural disasters, was a sort of prime preoccupation of ancient chroniclers. So, I mean, we're talking about a period that the first flood these researchers looked at happened in in the year 1118. So we're talking about from the Middle Ages on. And the people who were writing for posterity in those times, their main goal was to communicate risk of famine, fire, flood, and so on. And so one of the interesting things is that those don't seem to have had that much effect in the long term, because by the second generation, people are already moving back into the danger zone even though they've got access to those chronicles, presumably because, at least that's the conclusion of these researchers, they're not hearing the kind of lived experiences so much. They're not hearing from the survivors about the visceral emotion of having lived through those terrifying times.
1: So what is the best way to preserve memories of situations like this?
0: You can see there are natural limits on this. I mean, I guess one obvious conclusion to take away from this and which the researchers did take away is that one of the best ways to teach history, at least in a sort of warning sense of history, is to bring the survivors into the classroom, is to have people hear from the eyewitnesses themselves. But obviously that can't go on forever. Their own memories fade over time, even the worst ones, and eventually they themselves expire. So, you know, there's a kind of built-in forgetting mechanism here, which may turn out to be adaptive at some level. I mean, after all, if you take the example of floods... There's always a trade-off. All the way through history, people have built their settlements close to water because we need water to live, we need it for washing, for cleaning, and that's been kind of translated into a real estate value that's placed on waterside properties. But that has to be traded off against the risk of danger from being close to a water course.
1: Were the researchers able to extrapolate from what was going on in their Czech communities to people in general?
0: They do, and obviously there is an element of speculation to this. But I think it's probably reasonable to say that memories of natural disasters and the way they fade is not peculiar to the Czech population. And among the messages that they take away from it is that something like vaccine hesitancy, for example, which is a growing problem at the moment, might have to do with the fact that people who are alive today haven't had much experience of the terrible epidemics and pandemics of infectious disease that used to prey on humanity in the days before vaccines and antibiotics. And so at a collective level, we've become rather blasé. We don't place so much importance on that memory. Another example would be rising populism in Europe and elsewhere today. People who are alive don't have their own lived memories or access so much to eyewitnesses of the last wave of populism that ravaged Europe in the 1930s and on.
1: Now, of course, human forgetting actually is essential to our survival because if not, we'd be paralyzed by our fears. Do the authors bring that up at all?
0: This comes in the discussion of the paper, which I suppose does not appear actually in the paper, but they absolutely do. The whole thing is geared towards asking, why do we do this? I mean, most collective human behaviours are adaptive at some level. The question is, why would this be adaptive to forget so soon? One answer you might propose is that We don't necessarily take the right lessons from history always. We take lessons from history, but they may not be the right ones. So nature has evolved a way in which we kind of go back to zero, start again, and have to learn through our mistakes again. It sounds horrifying, and particularly in connection with natural disasters, where you'd think we would just learn the easy lesson, don't go near the river, it floods every now and then. But in more complicated scenarios, wars and so on, we may not always take the right lesson, and perhaps this is a corrective to that.
1: Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You can read more about the study in this week's edition of The Economist. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com radiooffer radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Thanks for listening to Babbage. I'm Kenneth Kukye, and in London, this is The Economist.